like lost in thoughts. So. Well, yeah, but it might make us engage more with each other because sometimes when when you're talking, I have a tendency to just drown. Like, just wow, am I really <laughs> that boring? No, no, but you pause in the middle of your sentences, and I know I do this too. But when you pause so much, it's hard to actually concentrate. And it's hard to it's hard to keep focus. Okay. Well, so did you have any uh, did you have anything you wanted to to really center this talk on or center this podcast on? Um, there was that article that I sent you. Right. Which I'm I not... can you pull that up? Do you think we can? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Do you think we can just hit the main points on that? I haven't actually posted it yet. Mostly because I wanted to know what you think first. Because right, because I still haven't gotten around. I I don't think I've gotten around to reading it. You just said you did. I th- I thought I don't know. If okay. maybe it'll well, ring a bell. Pull up on your phone. I don't have my phone with me. Oh my gosh, I'll pull it up. Okay. Do you, do you, I'll read I'm it out. Pause. Loud. I'm. I'm do, gonna. Do you pause. mind if I read it out? Well, it's pretty long. Okay, actually, read it out loud. Okay, so. Hey, John, I wrote this. I wanted you to read it. That's not part of the article. That's the text beforehand. Okay, Okay, fine. So here's the article. How is it okay for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? I've been reading Fear and Trembling by Soren Kierkegaard, as I talked about on the podcast, and, and I've been thinking about these questions ever since I started. Why did God ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? And how could Abraham obey so readily? I cannot conceive how actually sacrificing Isaac would be morally justifiable. But then again, Abraham did not actually sacrifice Isaac. God was testing him. Why would God need to test Abraham, who already has demonstrated more faith than anyone else? Well, the father of God's chosen people, an ancestor to the Christ, must have unhesitating faith unmatched by any man that will ever exist, except God's own son, Jesus. It would just about wreck anyone if they were called to sacrifice their son, and Abraham loved his son more than anyone. He waited decades for Isaac and had faith that he would have a son in his old age. We can sympathize with the pain that it would bring to Abraham and at the same time be horrified that he would even think about sacrificing Isaac. We are horrified even though Abraham was sacrificing to the ultimate good, to God himself. But it's important that Abraham did not actually sacrifice Isaac. For doing so would be sacrificing a blemished lamb to God when God requires the unblemished. While Abraham's hand was stayed, God followed through, piercing the heart of his own son, his only son, the beloved, the one who was and is perfect, the one who deserves glory. While Abraham would have sacrificed his son and, by his faith, saved his own name and the nation that would follow, God did sacrifice his son to save people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. He poured out the painfully infinite punishment for sin on his only son to save those who scoffed at him, who call him cruel, and who hate him for the suffering in the world, for the very sin and suffering he sacrificed Jesus to cure. Do they not know that God has suffered too? That God suffered more than anyone can imagine, alone, to save the world that has turned its back on him, yet he still loves? Do we think God does not grieve our treacheries? Genesis 6.6 God suffered to save me when I spat in his face and cried, crucify him. No, almost no one can understand. I can't understand. I think God was trying to reveal himself and the pain he would endure to a man of unmatched faith. 
In asking Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, God was showing Abraham that this unspeakable pain and crushing weight is what he would bear for those he loved. Abraham obeyed. Abraham understood. So that was your first time reading it? Yeah, so that was my first time reading it. Um, here, So here's the key thing that you didn't say explicitly, but I think it's implicit in the understanding of the story. When God asked Abraham to go up Mount Moriah and offer his son Isaac as a burnt offering, Abraham is legitimate, legitimately required to believe that God is truly asking him to do this, that this is a command from God. Otherwise, it would not be faith, because if he went up there thinking, oh, this is immoral, God's going to renege on his on His request as soon as I get up there and as soon as I'm about to stab him, then it wouldn't have been a, a true act of faith. No, Abraham really had to believe that this is what God was asking him to do. It's also important that Abraham didn't know that that was immoral. This is why I'm saying that, because... Abraham didn't have the law. Right. All he had was direct command from God. So how would he know that God required such a perfect sacrifice? Right. Well, he'd only know from God himself. And we, if, if we think God asked us to sacrifice someone we love, like physically kill them, we would know that that's not from God because God requires a perfect sacrifice. And he's already paid that sacrifice. But Abraham didn't know that. And that's why I think God the Father was trying to reveal himself in Abraham, the father of nations. He was trying to, he desires a, a relationship with us. And he desired a relationship with Abraham. And being the father of the nation of Israel, and consequentially, every Christian and every believer. God required, no, God wanted a relationship with him and revealing himself through what he would go through. Does that make sense? So is our, is our question more along the lines of how is, or is, is, how is this moral? How is this okay? Right? That's the question you opened the article with. Well, there's two questions. How is it okay? And why did God ask him that? Right, and you just answered the second one. And I answered the first one. Which is? Which is, it wasn't. But he didn't sacrifice Isaac. Because God doesn't change. So if you said, oh, because on a direct command of God, he can, like Kierkegaard says, on the direct command of God, you can have an ethical, what word does he use? An ethical, I don't, I don't remember. Basically, you can bypass the law on a direct command from God. Well, God doesn't change, so he can't contradict himself, which means that can't be right. Well, so so what what, what, what about Jephthah in the book of Judges? Why does Jephthah do what he does? Well, he sacrifices. But Jephthah had the law, which states... You shall not offer any human as a sacrifice. And where does it say that? Um, somewhere in Leviticus. So I'm going to read from Exodus 22, 28 through 20, 29. It says, The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall remain with his mother, and on the eighth you shall give it to me. 
What does that mean? Well, what, what God has the rights of the firstborn. What's the context? Right? No, I guess if you look at Micah 6, 6 through 8. Okay, what does Micah 6, 6 through 8 say? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Shall I give my firstborn for the transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What does the Lord require of you? And then it talks about how all that God requires is that we live justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before him. Um, so yeah, I see, I, I think based on the context of the time in which Abraham lived, Abraham would, would, would view this as a true, as a true command. Yeah, um, that it was a practice. Right, right, right. The, uh, well, child practice, child sacrifice was a legitimate practice, practice throughout all of Canaan. Because remember, Abraham uh, was kind of a nomad throughout the land of Canaan, and child sacrifice would have been practiced by all these polytheistic religions that are walking that that are existing throughout the land of Canaan. But Abraham is said to be a worshiper of the one God. And I don't remember the name. I, I think the the name that they use for God is El Shaddai, which, which is is not God revealed by His name Yahweh. It's just God. I think it just means singular God. And so we have Abraham who worships this God, and we also have Melchizedek who lives in the city of Salem. And if you read Hebrews, it talks about how Jesus is a priest of the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek? Melchizedek. Melchizedek. I've never heard the ch pronounced. I, I think it's Melchizedek. No. no. Okay. I know who you're talking about. Okay. I don't. So they're, they're said to have something in common because they're both worshipers of the, the singular God, the unit, the, the God who exists as one, right? And the other ones are, are said to not be worshipers of him. But going back to what we were talking about, Abraham would have legitimately believed that this is a, a command that God would ask him to do, right? Because he doesn't have the revealed nature of God. He doesn't have the law given to him yet, right? But if you read Romans 1, if you read Paul's argument in Romans 1, it says that the things of God are revealed by, by that which he created, Right? God reveals himself to us by, by creation. So whether that's creation around us, the pattern of, of things, the patterns of nature, or it could be conscience. God, God might even reveal himself to us through this conscience. And, and the Levitical law and the law that you find in the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible, might attest to that too. Right, it might attest to the, the to the law that he's placed on our own hearts. Just kind of a side note on that. There was something I don't remember where I heard this, but it was an interesting it's an interesting idea, and it was talking about how action comes first, and then articulating that action comes second. What does that mean? Well, it means that well, the Israelites lived for a time 
without the law, but they still functioned. So they were, they know, abiding by the unspoken law still produced the proper order. But whenever they articulated that law, that's when the law was given to them. Or whenever the law was given to them, that's when it was articulated. So okay. the action comes first, comes first, and then the word. Um, and I think maybe that's what Paul is referring to when he's saying creation, like God reveals himself through creation. We see these things, we act, or we, we have a conscious conscience. conscience. I kept messing that up last time. We have a conscience, and we are conscious. We're and conscious we're, of our conscience. Yes. And we know the right way to act in a broad sense. And then we articulate that, and that matches up with the law. Maybe that's what Paul was talking about. Okay. So you talked about you were you were mentioning unspoken order. There's an un. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean they they survived. There were people pre-law that followed God. Right. The the patriarchs. Yeah, and. So when people say there's an, uh, like in that ethics class that I took, they would judge all the different ethical theories or moral theories based on several different criteria, one of which is an epistemological criteria, meaning, okay, well, then how do people know that? Like, right, epistemology is, is the study of... Of knowledge, right? How we get knowledge. The Greek word episteme means knowledge. So if you, if you combine epist, episteme with lo, logia, what, what is it? I don't know, dude. It's, it's just the study of knowledge. Okay, it's the study of knowledge. Um, and so they, there are several different theories that have an epistemological or an epistemic problem, meaning they're not intuitive. How are we supposed to know, for example, like utilitarianism is like the way to go. Like okay. a lot of times that's not intuitive. But given our conscience, right, that is intuitive. Well, that's, that is the definition of intuitive. Which is what? It's given to us. It's given to us. Intuitive means given to Intuitive us. means in, which means in. Okay. To it means, I don't know, I don't know that. well, to that. No. No. It means, it means, it means if we bought it, if it was a computer, no, I was, that was a bad analogy I was about to make. So something. Software's already preloaded. It's like preloaded. It's hardwired into us. Okay. So that's what that's what C.S. Lewis talks about is that when when you're doing ethical reasoning, he he says that you have facts, you have intuition, and then you have reasoning. Facts 
are known by reception and it's pretty much your intake and processing of the reality that's around yeah. you. Reasoning is is the arrangement of facts along with intuition. Reasoning is how you arrange these things in order to get to certain conclusions. Intuition, which I skipped, I went straight from facts to reasoning. Intuition are these basic propositions that that no good man has ever doubted. That's what he says. It's something that no good man has ever doubted. And so it would be something like this. Harmony or friendship or love, they're good. Here's Here would be another one. The good ought to be followed. The good ought, ought to be chased after. We ought to go for the good. Uh, here, here would be another one. We ought to shun evil. We ought to not practice evil things. These are all things that he would say no good man has ever dreamed of doubting. Which, Will, it sounds like you would say, well, uh, maybe that's true, but, but these things are just given to us in our consciences. That's what intuition is. But regardless, I think you would both agree on, on the idea that these are propositions and these are fundamental principles from which when we receive the facts and we combine them using reasoning, we get ethical conclusions and we get ethical imperatives. You shall not murder. You, you shall honor your father and your mother. I think, would you agree with that? I'd agree except for the part where he says no good man has ever doubted. No good man has ever dreamed of doubting. Oh come on! There are several people that have had, that have done, that have doubted those things and done horrible things, but then have been redeemed. No, 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 no. I think I think Lewis would say no. These people knew it all along. These people knew well, the proposition. They just didn't follow it. They knew that it was good. They knew that it was right. They knew that it was true. They just didn't ever follow it. So you're because saying, you don't have to obey it. You don't have to obey the intuitions. So you're saying someone who believes in like a nihilistic worldview can't be redeemed? That sound, that's the logical conclusion. Where are you getting that from? Because if, they, if they're truly nihilistic, they think this is all nothing. This means nothing. There's no inherent like meaning to the world. Right. That is that is the definition of doubting those intuitions. Oh. And if they are then redeemed and saved, they will undoubt their intuitions. I think doubt's a doubt's a tricky thing because most people struggle with doubt. Okay. So I don't think you can say no good man has ever doubted. No good man doubts. I think you can say that. Because well, at the moment in time, here, if they're say, good, then they're not doubting. Let me say this. A nihilist who is true to his or her worldview, I don't think we would classify as a good person. You're right. But they can still be redeemed because they're still a person. Why are you saying that they... What makes you think that Lewis would say they can't be redeemed? Well, he was saying that anyone who has dreamed of doubting them is not a good man. That if no you've dreamed man. of doubting your intuition, you're not a good man. No, That's, no, 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 that no. sounds wrong. No, he's just saying 
he was he's making a statement about how self-evident these propositions are yeah yeah when you're looking I, at them with a clear mind i i agree I'm he's just, saying these things are just self-evident i I'm, i agree i just think that the way it's phrased is easily misinterpreted um just for the record i'm getting this information from an essay he writes titled why i'm not a pacifist which he delivers to the pacifist union at oxford university interesting i think does right around the they, time of world war ii does it say how they receive it it doesn't say how they receive it did you look it up uh, no i didn't look it up but interestingly i don't know if you know this c.s lewis fought in world, world war one yeah yeah and almost uh did radio broadcast during world war ii yeah. which is where we get mere christianity which yeah right because that was originally a radio broadcast yeah. and most of the essays in here were his radio broadcasts from world war ii which brings me to what i wanted to talk about today which is an essay he writes titled the inner ring you know this you know this like smile like i'm so excited on your face <laughs> so well do you know what the inner ring is um well i think it's like the outer ring but on the inside keep going what does that mean what does that mean yeah. well it means that it's inside the outside all right and it's a ring we're not getting which is a circle here. now i know what the inner circle is which is which is like you know you got like a head person and they're very close confidants. Okay, good, good. That's actually a lot, a lot along the lines of what it is. He, C.S. Lewis says in his introduction to this essay, he writes very vaguely and he kind of adds this sort of uneasiness or superstition. Uh, superstition is not the right word. This ghostly character to to the inner ring he's saying there are no formal admissions or expulsions people think they're in it after they have in fact been pushed out of it or before they've been allowed in this provides great amusement for those who are really inside it has no fixed name the only certain rule is that insiders and outsiders call it by different names from the inside, it may be designated, in simple cases, by mere enumeration. It may be called you and Tony and me. When it, when it is very secure and comparatively stable in membership, it calls itself we. When it has to be suddenly expanded to meet a particular emergency, it calls itself all the sensible people in this place. From outside, if you have despaired of getting into it, you call it that gang or they, or so-and-so and his set, or the caucus, or, quote, the inner ring. So he, he writes, I, I, I hope you recognize what I'm describing. The, the inner ring is that, that clique, that group of people that everyone wants to be a part of, but, but those inside are very particular about letting people in. It's, it's that, that group that calls themselves we, 
and looks on everyone else's day. And so many sitcoms and so many books and embarrassing stories, I think, have to do with this inner ring. It's a common high school phenomenon. And I'm sure it's even more common in, you know, workplaces and 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 other environments. It's like in The Office with Will Ferrell's character, D'Angelo. Your boy, Kevin Malone, is in the inner ring. <laughs> okay, so, like, what's the point? So, well, Lewis thinks, uh, he, he thinks they're a necessity. He writes, I'm not going to say that the existence of inner rings is an evil. It's certainly unavoidable. There must be confidential discussions. And it is not a bad thing. It is in itself a good thing that personal friendship should grow up between those who work together. And it is perhaps impossible that the official hierarchy of any organization should quite coincide with its actual workings. If the wisest and most energetic people invariably held the highest posts, it might coincide. But since they do not, there must be people in high positions who really are deadweights and people in low positions who are more important than their rank and, and senior seniority will lead you to suppose. In that way, the second unwritten system is bound to grow up. It is necessary, and perhaps it is not a necessary evil, but the desire which draws us into inner rings is another matter. A thing may be morally neutral, and yet the, the desire for that thing may, may be dangerous. A thing may be morally neutral, and yet the desire for that thing may be dangerous. So let the inner rings be an unavoidable and even an innocent feature of life, though certainly not a beautiful one. But what of our longing to enter them, our anguish when we are excluded, and the kind of pleasure we feel when we do get in? Do you get the picture, though, yeah. of what I'm describing? Yeah. So he, he, would, he thinks, as I just went over, that these inner rings are not necessarily bad things. They're yeah, just kind of there. They're morally neutral. They're not good or bad. Well, every family is in a ring also. Right. There's a, it, there's a web of confidentiality between, between members. But here, here, let me ask you this question before we jump in to, to why the desire to enter an inner ring is evil. Why does it have to exist in the first place? He just said that. Right, but I, I don't think he... No, I don't think he hit on everything. Okay. A few things come to mind. Okay. Number one, Dunbar's number. Do you know what that is? No. It is the number of people that an individual can keep track of at one time. It's about 200. Okay. So you can't have more than 200 like actual people that like you, you keep in contact with. So you can't have more than 200 friends is what you're saying. Yeah. So Facebook is lying when it says I have a thousand three hundred friends. Yeah. And Instagram's lying when it says, well, I don't have an Instagram, okay. but if well, it were if it were to say I had five hundred followers, no not no. many followers people. are not friends. That's that's very different. Okay. Okay. But yes, that is Dunbar's number. Okay. So first of all, you can't have any larger than that. Second of all, so there there's the first reason. Second of all, well, not everyone's going to have the same of those 200. And then you have the Pareto distribution. 
also known as the Matthew principle. Okay. It comes from Matthew where he's, where Jesus says, to whom who has everything, more will be given. To him who has nothing, everything will be taken. It's basically the law of uh, compounding interest. Okay. Saying, well, your first friend, your closest friend, you're going to spend a lot of time with. Your second closest friend, or about like your second closest, maybe your third closest, will be about half as much. Okay. Third, about half of that. Fourth, half of that. And this distribution is everywhere in the natural world. Um, for example, and even in our society, size of cities in a country. Mm-hmm. Um, There's usually one that's really big. One half as big, one half as big as that, and it just keeps going, going, going. Well, the going. United States is a bit unique then. Mm, not not necessarily. Okay. We do have a lot of people. Um, like, New York is what, 10 million? 10 million. LA, 9 million. And then what's after that? Chicago? That's got to be like 5 million. Okay. So, size of cities... It also includes um, frequency of certain words in a given language. Okay. The is number one. Uh, number two is like of or something like that. That's half as much as the. Right. And every single word from there drops. Okay. Same thing as distribution of words in a book or any given book will be a, basically the same as the distribution of words in a language. Okay. It's everywhere. So what's the point? So the point is that you will have some people that are you, very, very few people that take up most of your time and most of your friendship. So that'll be your natural inner ring. Right. Okay. So it's just a law of the way that humans organize themselves. But why does this confidentiality exist? Why is the confidentiality? Yeah, why does why does there have to be confidentiality in the inner ring? Because you can only keep track of so many people, which means you can only trust so many people. And to each person is a different degree of trust. So you need trust, is what you're saying. You need trust. But that also means you can't trust everyone. Because you will get betrayed. Okay. And it'd be naive to think otherwise. But it, it, so this is actually where I want to go with it is that the inner ring is, and it's just morally neutral sense, it's just a manifestation of human relationships and the trust that we give to each other. Yeah, it's because it takes natural. trust. It takes trust to be able to really communicate with someone and to be able to open up to someone, right? That's a product of human relationships. We have to be able to trust each other. In order, in order to communicate effectively, you yeah, agree with that? I agree. So this trust then leads to confidentiality. Yeah. Right. And so here's how I picture the inner ring. For me, the inner ring isn't really a ring, because that would imply that one person at one vertice is only communicating to the person on his right and to the person on his left. If you can picture just a, a ring of people, to me, the inner ring is more like a web where one person at one vertice communicates not only to the person on his right and left, but also across the web in either direction. And so you have this intermingling of, of this web, 
whereby people share confidentiality amongst each other. And when you have people sharing confidentiality in a way that perfectly overlaps with one another, then, then I think you have a strong case of the inner ring. Yeah, but each person that is part of the inner ring physically cannot just interact with the other people that are in that ring. They interact with other people, and to those people, they have different degrees of trust. Right. So it's not just rings scattered about. I think an inner ring is like a very simple term. I think it's well, more of a it's a web. It's a clip. made up of what you would describe as rings. A web of rings. Okay, okay. Overlapping, sometimes distant, sometimes large, sometimes small, but it's a web of rings. Right. And what Lewis thinks is key to the concept of the inner ring is this this principle of exclusion. The inner ring is unique in that there's an imaginary line that goes all around this said web, right? This web of communication amongst people. There's this invisible ring or line of exclusion whereby some people are considered in and they know that they're in or some people are not considered in and that they're on the outside. I think there's also honorary members, you know, occasionally in, sometimes in, sometimes out. Okay. People on the fringes of the ring. So, right. So we're gonna get, I think, more into why the inner ring is not necessarily moral, moral good, because Lewis says that the genuine inner ring exists for exclusion. That is, it exists for the sake of excluding those on the outside, because as he says, there'd be no fun if there were no outsiders. The inner line, the invisible line, would have no meaning unless most people were on the wrong side of it. Exclusion is no accident. It's the essence, right? There's a difference between intimate relationships amongst the group and the inner ring. Because I think it's this principle of exclusion that makes the, well, the once morally neutral inner ring into something that's no longer morally neutral because it now exists for the sake of exclusion. Do you agree with that? That no, no, you don't. No, why not? Because actually, I don't think I understand what you're saying. Okay, what do you mean by the inner ring must have exclusion? It's what, are you saying that that exclusion is a hard line between the inside and the outside? No, not necessarily. That it's conscious, conscious, un- conscious decision. Um, here's here's what I'll say about the invisible line: that there are some people who are definitely in, and that there are some people on the outside who want to be in. But the people on the inside laugh at them because they know that they're not in. Now, that is a very, I would say, a much smaller subset of inner rings. A lot of times, the inner ring, the only reason other people aren't in it is because, well, there are physical constraints. Like, they're far away. Um, maybe, you know, they don't. people that are there don't want to have to get them up to speed. They don't share as much in common 
those are pretty like weak. That's a pretty weak boundary. See, but I'm talking about the inner ring that that really defines itself and and how people on the inside find amusement and actually find so a small subset of inner rings is right, what you're talking right. about. I'm talking about a subset of inner rings. So we'll call them can we call them clicks because okay, let's call them clicks because that has the connotation of what you're referring to. Okay, so the the perverted inner ring, right? The inner ring that that's not necessarily just an outworking of human relationships like a family is, but 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 rather people who you know find find joy. I don't think joy is the right word, but are amused yeah. by the idea that some people want to be in, but they're not allowed in. Yeah. So, okay, that that's what we're gonna we're gonna label this as clicks. Then. So, at at this point, has has the inner ring, which is now a click, has it become bad? Has it become a morally bad thing? Well, yeah. And why is that? Because people's desires are for, are alone for the click and not for God. Which is the basis. Okay, so I, I like what you're doing then. You're making a clear basis of morality. Yeah. But can you, can you dive deeper into this idea? Because I... Okay. Why do they desire the click? They desire the click because they think that being in it would give them fulfillment that being out of it doesn't. Keep going. That that's good. Keep going. Well, that's that's what I have to say. That being in it gives them some sort of satisfaction that being that not being in it does. Yeah, and I don't think I think desires for things aren't bad desire to be in a stable and loving family that's not bad but when you place that desire as your number one priority that is what's bad because god should be your number one priority okay okay and so you can want to be in a clique but if that leads you to if that leads you to acting, to obsessing over it, to acting in a way that you otherwise shouldn't, then it's bad. Okay, so that's kind of what, what Lewis talks about then. He's talking about the two reasons he thinks that these inner rings, which have now become cliques, are dangerous. He says, this is my first reason. Of all the passions, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things. In a sense, you'll go, right, peer pressure, or you'll go to far extents to get into this ring and to be on the inside. Yeah. You'll metaphorically sell your soul. Right. And he says, my second reason is this. The torture allotted to the Danides in the classical underworld that of attempting to fill sieves with water is the symbol not of one vice, but of all vices. 
It is the mark of a perverse desire that it seeks what is not to be had. You are trying to peel an onion. If you succeed, there will be nothing left. It is the mark of a perverse desire that it seeks what is not to be had. So, so here's what I, I kind of think about it. There's, there's something about intimate relationships that people, one, have a need for, and, and two, want to be inside when you're looking from without. I'll argue, I'll lay that down as a proposition. Okay. And, and if you're on the inside of an intimate relationship and you see people looking from the outside and wanting to be in, that makes you feel good. Being envied and being coveted makes you feel good, right? Yeah. But why? Why is that the case? Why do you enjoy being envied and coveted? I think because because when someone envies you and when so- someone covets you, it tells you that there's something about you worth envying and coveting. There's something in you that is worthy of, of another person's envy and covetedness. I'll lay that down as another proposition. I don't know if we can judge whether that's right or not. I'd say it comes from our sinful desire to want to be God. Okay, okay, right. And that kind of leads to, to what I'm going to say, is God has his worth within himself. God is valuable because God says that he himself is valuable. But necessarily being creator, being the only one capable of creating from nothing, and being the one that sustains everything around, he's the only one who's able to say that. He's the only one who's able to have true self-worth. Being Wanting to be like God in our sense would be wanting to define our own worth. Wanting to say that we are worth something without God. That we can give ourselves worth. Which I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true either. And that that is a very, very, very common philosophy today. Which is? Which is, I can define my own meaning. I am worth because I am me. Okay. That's dangerous. Right, that's dangerous. And it's it's essentially all over again. It's the eating of the fruit, fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Because when God gives this command to, to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, he's saying, trust me, don't define good and evil. Do not play God. Trust me. Do not play God. That's what he's saying. When he gives them this command, he's saying, I'm going to give you this free will. I'm going to throw this in here for the sake of free will because I want you to choose to trust me. Right? And that's an that that is faith working itself out is the yeah. choice to trust God. I kind of want to come and talk about why the knowledge of good and evil was the fruit that God chose to put in the garden. Okay, yeah, we can come back to this. Yeah. But so we're going to leave off at at this idea of self-worth and we're gonna, we're going to talk about why God chose to put the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. But I, let me just say this. God putting the fruit in there as the knowledge of good and evil is saying, don't define reality. Which, which when we say we are worth something, when we lay that down as a proposition, having not observed it, but just throwing it out there as a proposition, as though we can create propositions 
that weren't out there in the first place. We are, we are defining reality. That is a manifestation of us defining reality. I listened to someone and they were talking about something like that. They were saying, I think it was Robbie Zacharias. Uh, yeah, he talks a lot about he this. He talked about... Yeah, I'm essentially repeating what he has to say on the subject matter, but it's because I think he's right. Yeah, it was very interesting. Okay, what else do you have to say about the quick? Oh, so we're not going to... Oh, we, we can, but I, I didn't know if you had anything else to say. I, what, yeah, let me keep... Okay, we're going to go back to the quick. So, the people in the click being envied and coveted from the people on the outside figure that there's something worth worth about themselves being envied and coveted. So I think they define they find this sense of self-worth being envied and coveted as a member of this clique. And pretty soon as as the true true relationship is forgotten and and the actual intimacy that the clique had in the first place disappears, the inner ring becomes a, a facade existing solely for the sake of deriving self-worth through the exclusion of others. So now the inter- the the inner ring, uh, which became a clique, is is no longer a manifestation of intimate relationships. Now it exists solely for deriving self-worth of the members through the exclusion of others. That's what this inner ring functions as. And so the the eyes of the members turn from inward, from seeing each other in the clique, to outward, to looking at everyone else coveting them and envying them. And they lose sight of the trust that they once had with one another and focus solely on grabbing satisfaction from being envied. And, And sure, the confidentiality within the inner ring still exists, for it must, after all, exist in order for the inner ring to actually be an inner ring but confidentiality no longer exists as a result of trust but rather as a front for envy so the nature of the inner ring changes but but what's so bad about that what's bad is that the desire of those within the inner ring has become a perversion a twisting of the truth And, and this is what lewis said lewis says once again it is the mark of a perverse desire that it seeks what is not to be had. You are trying to peel an onion. If you succeed, there will be nothing left. A perversion, and this is what I argue, is all evil can ever be. Yeah. Because only the truth has the power to create from nothing. Evil, inherently, I don't think has the power to create from nothing. All evil can do is twist the truth. Yeah. All evil can do is present the truth in a way that it's a I lie. agree. I think it's inherent that the truth is more powerful than lies or false or evil. Because if telling the truth can help repair a lie, the truth is an antidote to lies, which means that the antidote is stronger than the poison. Right. The antidote is always stronger than the poison. Right. Or otherwise it wouldn't be an antidote. Right. So, Will, what... This goes back to what we were talking about. When people derive self-worth solely from excluding excluding others, what what truth here is being perverted? 
what's the truth here that has been twisted a little bit? I think you said it earlier. Is it the trust and confidentiality of the group? See, no, I, I think it's the it's the deriving self-worth from ourselves rather than um, from yeah. God. See, we are we're derived beings. We have not existed since the beginning of time. We were created at some point. And being derived, I think we need ground. We need some sort of solid ground outside of ourselves in order to find truth about ourselves. Um, and I don't think we can give it to ourselves because of that. I think we need that when we do that, we're seeking value where we're not going to find it. And while I do believe we need value, and I do believe we can truly find value in the right way and in the good way, the question is merely a matter of essence. What is the actual foundation from which our value springs? And I think that's God. Mm-hmm. As Augustine says at the beginning of his confessions, you have created us for yourself, Augustine, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. I think that's where we're going to find our true worth. And I, I think the fact that God created us tells us that our source of worth is going to be found in him. And the fact that we are not the re- resulting ooze of natural processes, but rather the intelligent design of an intelligent designer points me in that direction. I'm, I'm, as, I'm worth as much as my creator wants me. The only question is, does he? Does he want me? Mm-hmm. And as I, as I wrote in the article that's on the website, Hidden Philosophy, what was the article? What was it called? The, Amer- the Americans. Why couldn't the Americans just suck it up? Why couldn't the Americans just suck it up? Right, that was my article. And the answer... USA. <laughs> that wasn't my answer. It's basically. So as I wrote in the article, trying to answer this question, does God want me? I, I'm going to reference Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 4 through 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And he is referring to Jesus Christ. Can we can we deduce from this? Can we can we deduce or infer or induce whether or not our Creator wants us? from what he was willing to do for us. Uh, Yeah, I I would say so. And I think that's worth far more than, I think that says much more than what we could ever do for ourselves. 
if we really want self-worth, trying to give it to ourselves is the wrong way to go. When we can really find it elsewhere. And I'll say this, you know how you know how you can post a picture on Instagram? You can? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. You, you can post a picture on Instagram and, and, and wait for likes, right? You throw a clever caption in there. You maybe throw a filter on it. And you make sure you get the right angle of your face in the picture so that you look beautiful and gorgeous, right? And, well, by the way, use portrait mode on the iPhone as well. So you look perfect and then you throw the picture up on Instagram and you sit there and you wait for likes. Maybe you you toss your phone aside, go do something else, but you come back and check. You check and see how many likes you have and you're up to 50 or so, but that's not good enough because the other person also has 50. Then, Then you're up to 150. It's still not good enough because you know, the most popular people at school or the most popular people on Instagram are getting 500 or so. I, I don't know. And you just keep waiting for likes. And each new like, you get that little click. You get that little little hit of, okay, someone thinks I look good. Okay, someone thinks I look good. Okay, someone likes it. Okay, someone, someone wants me. Or, or you turn your essay in and your teacher reads it and, and he says, this is phenomenal. This is the best essay I've ever read. And well, of course you knew that when you turned it in, but to hear him say it, that means something. I think our worth is validated from what, from what something or someone on the outside has to say about it. Yeah. That, at least that's how we interpret it. Right. Our worth is validated by something from the outside. And that is, that's just how the truth works itself out. As much as we try to say, I look gorgeous, I look gorgeous in this picture, when someone else likes it, that feels good. But when we tell ourselves, it doesn't feel nearly as good. Or which as much means, as we say... Which means we cannot create our own value. Which means we cannot create our own value. We need validation from the outside. Uh, yeah. As much as we tell ourselves, this is the best paper that's ever been oh. written. This is the... I am a genius. This is the best paper on this topic that anyone's ever written. I write beautifully. When someone else tells us, that's when it starts to mean something. Mm. And And... Here's what I'm saying, is that opinions and validation from other people will rise and fall with their capricious moods, with with whim, right? They will rise and fall so long as you're doing good or you're doing poorly. But with God, I think it's different. Because if God knows everything, and he sees everything. He knows me at my worst, but he also knows me at my best. And he tells me through Jesus Christ, through Jesus's willingness to die on our behalf and willingness to endure the cross on our behalf. He tells us we're worth so much more than likes on Instagram. 
or a teacher's comment could ever mean. He tells us that we are worth something in his eyes. I think that's the truth. I think that's what can change your life is knowing this. The question is, how does this become a reality? How does it become a reality that we know that we're worth something in God's eyes? That, that God wants us. He wants us. That can change someone's life. How does it become real? And I don't. I think that that answer is a person by person, because that 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 question is what is answered in people's testimonies. When do they realize that? That's when it clicks. How do we realize it then? Well, it changes on different people. Different people have different ways of realizing it. How do we realize anything? Well, Paul says, how can they understand if they haven't been taught or preached to? Right. Well, so we first have to hear the truth. Okay. Rarely do people hear it and immediately accept it. Right. So that is that transition phase. Okay. Where we subconsciously think about it. And then one day, something very small triggers it. And we're just like, oh my gosh. God loves me. And it becomes real to you. Right. It's... It's very mysterious. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a that's that's a good point. I, how will you know if you haven't been taught? How will you know if you never heard it? Oh, the problem is, well, people aren't talking about this. Like, rarely, unless you go seeking for this. Are you going to come across someone that that's actually talking about truth like this, right? I don't know. I don't know. I haven't been everywhere. I, I can't tell you. I do not know. It feels that way sometimes. Right. How many conversations do you have throughout the day? that are the opposite most of them what does that mean for us I don't know well is there anything else you wanted to throw in to this podcast I know we talked about maybe discussing why God put the knowledge I, I think we can save that for for a different one. For a different one. Okay. That sounds like a long conversation, and this has already been going on for quite some time. Right. Okay. Um, so I, I just want to throw this out there. If you are listening, and we were we were just talking about how how people aren't talking about this, but maybe people need to hear it. And so if you're listening. I don't know. Maybe maybe just tell someone like, hey, 
there's some there's there's something you might need to hear. Um, maybe tell them yourself. Maybe what? Or maybe tell them about the podcast. Yeah. Maybe, <laughs> maybe tell them about the podcast. But it's better if it comes from you. Well, it's it's better when they know it. It's better when people know this. It's just yeah, it's hard to make it mean something. I, I guess, but. Um, is that up to us though? Right. Is that up to us? Maybe, maybe tell them about the podcast. Maybe share the podcast with someone. Yeah. Is there anything you wanted to say before we close? Uh, no, that I think that's about it. Okay. I would say bye, but I'm looking at you right now. So, All right. Um, bye, everyone listening. Bye.